Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. So much focus recently has been the relationship between the U.S. and China. Here to talk about that is Patrick Shavanik. He is Managing Director and Chief Strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management, just back from a tour of uh, Denmark and uh, Norway. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> me here in our 1130 studios. So, Patrick, let's focus on China here because we are uh, getting more talks that are continuing to fail but maybe making progress. Today, the big move is in the Chinese yuan, which is actually uh, strengthening by the most versus the dollar since 2016. What's going on here? Are we getting some sort of uh, progress or is this just sort of muddling to a new phase? So on the trade talks, um, there wasn't a lot of optimism that the talks over the past couple of days would lead to anything. And in fact, they took place amid um, the the likelihood and now the reality of a new round of tariffs being imposed on both by both sides. So, uh, you know, I, I, th I think the Chinese are trying to figure out um, what exactly might satisfy the Trump administration if, if there is a deal to be cut here. And I think there's some disagreement within the Trump administration about what what would be satisfactory. You know, some uh, such, such as Larry Kudlow uh, insist that the um, that that the trade sanctions are bargaining chip to open up uh, trade with China. A lot others of people don't think so. Others, such as Navarro, you know, uh, the, the impression that I have is that he thinks uh, uh, tariffs are the solution. That that China won't move. It's kind of you know, and that and that actually tariffs are the way that the are the way forward. You know, and honestly, we were just speaking with Garrett Devink of uh, Bloomberg Technology, and he was talking about the U.S. Postal Service and President Trump trying to push uh, the agency to renegotiate its treaty and how uh, it charges small packages to China versus uh, the other way around, and that doesn't feel like. It's things a are bargaining easing, chip. right? It yeah. doesn't feel like things are easy. It doesn't feel like right. a bargaining chip because it's very specific and it's highlighting an issue that's been simmering for a long time. Yeah. So, so I think there's this division within the administration, and I don't know, you know, where Trump falls on this, uh, about whether the goal is freer trade or whether the goal is protectionism. And obviously, you know, if you're in the markets, you'd like to know the answer to that question, um, but. We'll only know in time. Um, but it doesn't seem like this is heading towards a resolution anytime soon. You know, I want to sort of throw out there a theory that a number of big bank strategists have talked about, which is that President Trump, as he faces more challenges at home, legally and otherwise, that he will amp up the rhetoric against China and Mexico and other places to seem uh, hard in his convictions and to appeal to his base. Does that hold water with you? So, you know, how much can more can you ramp up the rhetoric uh, without actually taking action that then subsequently has economic impact? And so, you know, I, I realize that the rhetoric and even the actions, you know, protectionism is popular with a certain part of his base, but it's also deeply unpopular with the business community and with markets. And the one thing he's really got going for him right now is a strong economy. And if I were him, I wouldn't want to do anything to mess that up. 
And if you look in the ISM surveys, um, both manufacturing and non-manufacturing, what a lot of companies are saying, hey, we, we have a strong economy, we see a lot of positive demand, but boy, these the, the uncertainty over tariffs, the impact on our, our input costs, uh, we're losing export sales. This is the one big negative that we see that's making us hesitate to invest more. And so if that's, if that's a reality now, going further down that path, um, you know, I don't want to sound apocalyptic, like, okay, it's going to end the cycle tomorrow, but, but it's, it's one more thing in a, in a cycle that's fairly mature. Yeah. It's one more thing that brings you closer to the end of the cycle, potentially. I have to wonder, you know, putting aside the trade tensions, how much China itself could be the end of the cycle if it mismanages a sort yes. of soft landing. And I think that people have stopped talking about that to some degree. But here we had Tencent report earnings that were highly disappointing. Alibaba reported earnings that were better than expected, but people still uh, weren't that enthusiastic by the stock, you know, based on the stock performance uh, because of concerns going forward about growth. Are, are you learning anything? Are you reading anything into this that makes you feel like there is a more substantial slowdown than people are, are really uh, giving credit to? So uh, I've always been quite concerned about China's economy and where it was headed um, and the, the debt issues that they have. In the past, I always took the view that um, because China was never really a driver of global growth uh, because, of its because of its surpluses, that uh, a slowdown in China's economy would, would not derail the global economy of the U.S. any more than the slowdown in the Japanese economy derailed growth in the 1990s, right? Um, because it really isn't a driver of global demand. Um, that said, how China responds to a slowdown could have a significant impact. So we've seen um, the yuan depreciate. Right. There's the prospect that they could have a devaluation, either in response to trade friction or uh, a, a deteriorating economy, that would have a global impact. That would be China trying to export its domestic internal problems right. globally, and that would create significant headwinds to U.S. growth. That's a far way off, though. I mean, clearly, the PBOC, um, you don't think so? Well, we've seen, you know, we've seen the depreciation in the renminbi, and, and I'm not saying, so I've never had the view that China will be forced to devalue. Okay, because I, I don't think that it would either be good for them or necessary for them to devalue. But back, you know, two years ago, there were a lot of people trying to persuade them that that was in fact the case. And whether it is the case or not, they could be persuaded that this is the path that they should go down. Particularly if it's a response to trade tensions, if it's seen as a way of of defanging U.S. tariffs by devaluating the currency or allowing it to depreciate. Um, I don't think it's a good path for China to go down, but it's one that they could choose to go down that would have global implications. Just real quick, I mean, perhaps the China slowdown doesn't necessarily have as big of an impact on global growth rates as, say, the U.S., but certainly for Asia, yes, it has a huge impact, and it can trickle out from there. No. So if you're if you are uh, if if you have over the past you know ten years been feeding into China's investment boom. If you're Australia selling iron ore or Chile selling copper or any number of Germany selling machinery to China, uh, yes, it could have the end of China's investment boom could have a very serious impact. Now, it could also have a positive impact in the sense that if it helped resolve some of the overcapacity that China has been creating over the years. So, you know, one thing that China's investment boom has done is it bid up the price of inputs and yeah. it pushed down the price of outputs. Uh, a reversal of that, I think, in the long run, would be positive for the global economy. But how you get there could be very disruptive. 
Patrick Shavanik, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, it's a pleasure getting your insights, and uh, China is in the absolute forefront of a lot of investors' minds these days. Patrick Shavanik, Managing Director and Chief Strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management. This has been a fascinating season for retail earnings. It has definitely split the haves from the have-nots with the Walmarts and the Targets of the world doing phenomenally while Gap and L Brands fall further uh, with people questioning why are they doing badly at a time when retail sales are going so strong. Here to talk about that, uh, as well as a slew of other issues facing the retail industry, is Rick Helfenbein, President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Apparel and Footwear Association, Based in Washington, D.C., although, you know, you've got a foot in Washington and a foot in New York. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for being here. Um, so what do you make so far of the retail earnings season? Uh, the earnings have been fascinating. I mean, we're, we're finally uh, seeing some relief from many years of agony. You know, we, we, we look at um, 2008 and we compare that to 2017. We actually had more bankruptcies in 17 than we did in 08. So... To see a really good earnings season like we're having now is beyond encouraging. But it's really, really interesting to dig into the earnings almost company by company. And the, I think the cardinal example of who's doing well, I look at Target yeah. and I look at Nordstrom. And Nordstrom to me is fascinating because a couple of years ago they were trying to figure out who is Nordstrom. Yeah. And they developed a very strong presence in Nordstrom Rack, which has a tremendous millennial appeal. And then they picked up on their internet sales, which were remarkably good. And to give them further credit, their in-store experience has been good. So they've been positive over 4% on uh, store traffic, I think. So everything is going right for them. Before you move on to somebody else, is there a particular person who is behind this strategy that has panned out in every facet? Well, in every company, there's usually a leader, but in these bigger companies, it's usually leadership by committees. So you have to give a bunch of people credit to understand, you know, that the dynamics of retail have changed. The millennial customer today, who you're really trying to attract, would prefer to shop on their phone. How do you convert that? And they also love stores like TJ Maxx. TJ Maxx is a huge favorite among millennials. The treasure hunt. Yeah. So... It's a combination of what works and what doesn't. And and probably the biggest measure in brick-and-mortar retail is foot traffic. The foot traffic is up if you have a strong internet component and if you have a mid-price line like, as I said, Nordstrom Rack. That's a win. But then again, you look at somebody like Walmart and, you know, there you have to be a little careful. You have to factor out the groceries. But look at their online sales phenomenal. Look at Target's online sales, like up 41%. So when you take it all, you can see the picture evolving. Those retailers um, who have got it really got it, and it's starting to show. And it's great. For somebody like me, this is, this is like manna from heaven. I just am hopeful it's not all going to implode. And when we get, we'll get to why it might implode in a second. I am, though, concerned when I look at Places like L Brands, Victoria's Secret's parent company, or Gap, or JCPenney and Sears, which have been having a hard time for a long time and are showing no signs of recovery. You have to wonder if these companies are not doing well now, what will it take for them to revive? Well, <clears throat> Sears is sort of in a world of its own, and it's really hard to 
<clears throat> comment on how to figure out how to get them out of their funk and their conundrum. Uh, J.C. Penny, on the other hand, there's hope for J.C. Penny. Really? The, the, the question is, can they figure out what works and what doesn't work? You know, we had uh, Toys R Us, Kids R Us go out of business. Where are people going to buy their kids' clothes? That used to be a, a strong point of J.C. Penny. So maybe you know they can advance on that. They have to figure it out. But you know, then you look at someone like Gap, who reported today. Um, Old Navy was very strong. Don't look at Gap. Look at Old Navy and see what works, and then figure out how to change the dynamic. All these companies are fighting for market share, but people are buying. You know, it's funny in retail. You look at three things. You look at the unemployment level. You look at the consumer confidence level, and um, they're all good. All right. So one thing that's not perhaps good for your industry are some of the tariffs that have been proposed and you've been lobbying against some of them. Um, a lot of them will hit your industry directly. Where are we with that? Well, I was at the hearings on Monday. Our team testified. And uh, frankly, I, I was sitting in the what I would call the peanut gallery. And it sounded a little bit like Clarabelle honking at Buffalo Bob. It, it was so sad. All these really strong businesses and trade associations explaining to a panel of government representatives how raising tariffs would severely impact their business. I'm curious, were there any representatives from companies arguing for the tariffs? Yes, there were a few, and I, I um, put few in capital letters. Um, and, and a lot of that plays to self-interest. For them, you know, some protectionism would help. Like who? Uh, well, there's uh, one gentleman test testifying actually about right now as we speak um, from a leather company, and uh, his interest is to protect his business. Um, NICTO, the trade organization, also testified, and they you know they represent textile interests in America. So you, know, you have to give these people credit to the extent they're fighting for what they believe in. But I have to say they're in the minority, but they're believe what they believe. Most people who testified had tears in their eyes. You're really going to hurt me. This is going to hurt my business. And in this third tranche, we call it of 200 billion, they've got handbags, they've got hats, they've got baseball gloves, they've got backpacks. You know, I, I tell everybody to listen that, you know, it's back to school season. You better buy two backpacks because your $20 backpack is going to be 30 next time. Do you think that there will be bankruptcies as a result of some of the proposed tariffs? Or do you think it will just be uh, slower profit margins? No, you know, it, the tariffs aren't going to push people into bankruptcy. It'll be other economic factors that do it that are already in play. Uh, the bank, the uh, tariffs will just exacerbate the situation because, you know, Remember, this isn't a 25% tariff they're talking about. It's 25% on top of what you're already paying. So if you're paying 20% and you had 25, you now got a 45% tariff. What do you think is going to happen? People are going to stop buying. They stop buying. Sales go down. Um, <laughs> it's a bad cycle. Is there any positive consequence from some of the proposed tariffs on retail? Wow. What a, what a great question. Um, Two-word answer. Absolutely no positive consequence, except maybe at the end of the day, perhaps tariffs will just go away and then people could uh, spend what they really should be spending for product. You know, it, 
you look at the economy, and, and uh, there was an article this this week about uh, millennials responding to the next crash. Yeah. And you know how will they respond? It's been ten years. Well, keep in mind that low cost product in the last recession really helped us out, helped us come back quickly. Yeah. You're not going to have that anymore. So if you're short on cash, it's going to be harder. Rick Helfenbein, thank you so much for joining me today. Rick Helfenbein is president and chief executive officer of the American Apparel and Footwear Association in Washington, D.C. The business of car racing is massive and growing. Joining us now is Mark Miles, President and Chief Executive Officer of IndyCar, also the President and CEO of Holman & Company, which owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for being with us. I just want to start with an overview. Can you give us a sense of sort of the state of play of the car racing business, given the fact that we've seen declines in some uh, listenership, viewership, attendership of uh, other, other sports? Yeah, there's definitely uh, headwinds in in sport to some extent and the motorsport to a great extent. But frankly, we're delighted that over the last few years, since probably 2013, IndyCar has been growing in with respect to almost all the sort of fan metrics. Our television ratings are up uh, 38% in four years. Um, our attendance is growing. Uh, our social following is up by a million uh, followers in the last year. And so uh, we feel like we're kind of bucking the headwinds and and very bullish about our future. Can you give a sense of why? I mean, you noted also uh, that uh, IndyCar has the highest percentage of millennials, about 42% of any of the major sports leagues. What is it about uh, the sport that is attractive to younger people? Part of our growth is because I think we kind of squandered the recent years in our past, and so we're, we're, we're getting our act together and getting things together going forward. But inherently, we think IndyCar racing has a lot to offer. It is the fastest series out there. It's very technical. And by that, I mean on the track, but also in the way we go to market. For example, in a two-hour race, we collect 50 million data records. And when we talk to uh, uh, companies you're well aware of that think about how they can help us uh, convert that data into really interesting content for fans, we think there's a, there's a lot to offer there and to continue to grow our younger audience in particular. So um, the sport is compelling. You can start at the back of the grid and, and win a race with lots of different winners. And yet we've got some, you know, some stalwart competitors like Team Penske and, and Ganassi and Andretti and drivers that are veteran champions. Yeah. So we got challengers and, we got, uh, and, and we've got established champions. And I just think there's lots and lots of narrative for fans to follow. So, uh, Mark, when I, think about, uh, when I think about car racing in the United States, I think about uh, the zooming noise and I think about how fast they go and, and the sort of uh, sponsorship labels all over the cars. I also think of the highly publicized crash that occa- crashes that occasionally happen uh, from time to time. And there was a, a terrible crash uh, just on Sunday, IndyCar driver Robert Wickens uh, being hospitalized for some serious injuries after a crash at the Pocono Raceway. What does a crash like this do for the sport? Is it something that sets you back? How do you address it? I think the sport, first of all, everybody recognizes that it's, it is extreme sport and it's dangerous. 
<clears throat> so our our obligation is to do everything we can to to manage the technology and to continually improve um, safety and and to be a better able to minimize the effects of of accidents. Um, you know, psychologically, we're all human beings, and when a guy like Robbie Wickens has a serious injury. You, you know, it sort of takes your breath away, but he's getting great medical care. He gets great medical care at the track. We have, we're the, the one sport that for some years has had the same safety crews on the tracks, the same doctors, the same nurses that travel. Um, and so there's great continuity, a very high level of care. We work with our car manufacturer, the Dallara in Italy, to improve the, the 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 physical aspects of the car that make it safer all the time. So it's a never-ending process. We hope next year we'll be introducing a cockpit for the first time in years, and, and it'll help protect the uh, the drivers from debris and uh, around the track. Mm-hmm. We just got to keep doing the best we can. Racers sign up for it, and they're uh, they insist that we do all that we can. But they're a very resilient group, and it's kind of what they what they love to do. Yeah, indeed. Um, I'm wondering, you know, one of the big uh, headlines in the sports industry this year has been the legalization of sports gambling. And I'm wondering, does that affect you at all? Well, it will for sure. But to be frank, at this point, it's a little hard to know, you know, sort of how high is up. I think that, first of all, like all sports, we'll do everything possible to amp up kind of the integrity aspects of the governance of the sport. But I do think there's a commercial side to it, and whether that's uh, making our data available, uh, basically licensing it for for scoring and timing, um, and, and other things that, that that we think we can be engaged in, uh, yet to be determined. It's obviously complicated because you're going to have this patchwork of legislation by state, and we race 17 times a year in a number of different states. But it, it certainly you know drives fan attention to the sport and. At one level, that that can only be a good thing. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, really interesting, especially really interesting what you say about uh, fans' data and how that sort of allows you to be more targeted in your approach with both advertisers as well as attracting new fans. Mark Miles, President and Chief Executive Officer of IndyCar, uh, we really appreciate you joining us. He's also the President and CEO of Hullman & Company, which owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. IMS Productions, and the Indiana-based baking goods brand Clabber Girl. Uh, We really appreciate you being with us. Really interesting also that IndyCar has the highest percentage of millennials of any of the major sports leagues. So even though you are seeing, for example, uh, the uh, viewership of baseball, for example, decline, uh, there does seem to be some growth among the younger uh, generations in the United States. One interesting thing about the tit-for-tat tariff war tariff uh, tension that is brewing between the U.S. and China is just how much of the infrastructure of trade is actually getting unleashed uh, and sort of exposed and highlighted every day. The latest uh, is fascinating, looking at the Universal Postal Service and postal rates and how they're set. Garrett DeVink joining us now, currently a technology reporter at Bloomberg News here in our 1130 studios. Garrett, just walk us through what this is that President Trump is proposing to do in order to give a competitive edge to U.S. companies? So 
I think from his perspective, it's not so much necessarily about giving a, a new competitive edge to, U- to U.S. companies, but to sort of getting rid of what he sees as an uncompetitive edge for uh, the U.S. Postal Service and U.S. companies. So there's um, international treaties, judge, you know, sort of saying that, you know, one country's postal service has an agreement with another one. They agree to help each other out. These things go back, you know, for as long as we've had postal services, decades and hundreds of years. And so we are sort of in the situation right now where it's actually cheaper to send small packages, big things not, but small things, letters, and things up to about four pounds from China to a U.S. city than it is to send it domestically. And that's because of the international agreements between the Chinese Postal Service and the U.S. Postal Service. And so what Trump has said is next month at the meeting of the International Postal Union, he wants the U.S. representatives to go and sort of change this or pull themselves out of that agreement somehow. How big of a deal is this for the Amazons of the world and the Alibabas of the world? So the companies that could be hurt by this, any change, are anyone who's shipping a lot of small things from China to the U.S. So Alibaba, although, you know, obviously the bulk of its business is in China, is trying to grow that service in the U.S. So this could put a, definitely put a damper on their U.S. growth. Another company to look at is Shopify, which a lot of people see as, as sort of... It, Shopify is this kind of back-end provider. If you want to sell something online, anyone can set up. It's like YouTube for selling online. And uh, there's this perception that a lot of Shopify sellers are just sort of packaging small, cheap goods from China and selling them and sending them internationally. Shopify kind of says, well, you know, we're a diversified business, but that's a stock that you should be watching as well on this. How big of a deal is this? I mean, are we talking about a couple cents here and there uh, that add up to... Uh, some money, but not a tremendous uh, amount. Or are we talking make it or break well, it? Well, the USPS has lost type. billions of dollars over the last years. I mean, the last several years, they, they they run an operating you know shortfall every year to do their difficult job of you know sending packages to every single address in the United States. You know, they are sort of operating at a loss when it comes to this kind of international shipping. But they also agree to step deeper into these agreements with the Chinese Postal Service because they want a piece of that e-commerce international trade pie, much of it flowing from Chinese manufacturers to countries uh, in the West, such as the United States and Canada. And so they actually, you know, there's a few different things going on here. But, you know, from Trump's perspective, it's about, you know, trying to kind of control those costs and, um, you know, we'll see we'll see how those discussions go in September. So is the logic here from the U.S. side as to why they agreed to this arrangement where it's cheaper to send small packages from China to the U.S. and vice versa? Is the logic here that China said to the U.S. Postal Service or, you know, we just won't do business with you otherwise? If you don't accept these fees, we're out. Well, Someone is going to be shipping those things, you know, either way. And the USPS, I think that they wanted to sort of, they didn't want someone else. They didn't want a private shipper to be, you know, getting the bulk of that e-commerce revenue. So they said, well, let's step into these agreements. You know, we'll take a loss in the actual um, shipping them, you know, from once they arrive to the U.S. to their end destination. But then what we can do is we can layer on other costs. We can layer on tracking costs. We can layer on premium services. We can lay on rush shipping. And so they said, if we can grab some of this market share, all of these packages coming from China, you know, we'll we'll, we'll deliver them at a loss to us. But then if we can sort of try to add some premium services, that's where we're going to make the money. And that's kind of has not been working out for them yet. What do people in the market say? I mean, do people think that, that President Trump is right on this? 
I mean, it, it's definitely one of those things that seems to be sort of a holdover or a quirk from international treaties. I mean, you know, very few of us spend a lot of time thinking about uh, international postal service treaties and, and the agreements between countries when it comes to the mail. And so it does seem to be one of those issues that has sort of, you know, continued to go on and sort of been kind of subtly controversial to a very few group of people. But now that um, President Trump obviously is very focused on trade. He's focused especially on China and his perception that China is beating the United States at the international game. This has suddenly become, you know, at the forefront. Is this encouraging to technology companies that this is the tack that President Trump is taking, which is nuanced? It's actually very nuanced, and it's uh, perhaps highlighting issues that have been long simmering. It's not necessarily hit you over the head, at least when it comes to tech, uh, in the same way that it has been with, say, other areas. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, it's 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 definitely, you know, someone definitely sort of proposed this idea to him and it's something that he's, you know, gotten interested in and has sort of, you know, decided that it's something he wants to talk about. Companies like Amazon, they are happy about this because, you know, they... I would imagine you know, they yeah, would be. They, yeah. they, m m anyone whose business is not primarily sending things from China to other countries is, well, okay, this levels the playing field, you know, and even Shopify, which is perceived as a company that handles a lot of volume from China to the U.S., said, well, you know, this will lay, level the playing field for our users who are in United States and sending to other Americans. Really, really interesting. I, I did not know about these treaties, the international treaties that governed the price at which you sent packages uh, internationally. Garrett DeVink, thank you so much for being here. Garrett DeVink is technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining me here in the 1130 studios in New York. Uh, just really interesting that there is going to be this potential renegotiation of rates. A lot of renegotiations going on right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.